This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant is a website devoted to sharing good ideas for farmers and gardeners. There are photo-based blog posts with great ideas for your farm or garden, essays, book reviews, and of course, this podcast. You can find it all at theruminant.ca. You can email me, editor at theruminant.ca, and I'm on Twitter, at ruminantblog. All right, let's do a show. Hey everybody, happy Wednesday. So look, I don't have a new episode for you this week. I wasn't able to get an interview done in time, although the good news is that I have some great interviews booked coming up soon. So in the coming weeks, we're going to talk to uh, a woman I met at one of the conferences I was at this year who is doing some really interesting stuff with uh, livestock breeding, particularly uh, or specifically with, with cattle. As well, there's a woman who has been leading the charge in in opposing the Arctic apple, which is uh, the first GMO apple, and uh, we're going to talk about some of the implications for organic farmers uh, if this apple is released into uh, into the wild, I, su- I suppose. So that'll be coming up as well. And in addition, I've had an offer that I have gratefully accepted from friend of the show and fellow farmer Dan Brisbois. He was on the show previously a year or two ago, and uh, he's going to come on and talk about uh, how to effectively run a cooperative farm. Today, what I thought I would do, since I don't have all of my back catalog uploaded onto this newest podcast feed, is I figured I'd just I'd, I'd play a rerun of an episode that, that you, if you're subscribed to this feed, you can't you don't as yet have access to. So. I looked up my podcast feed and realized that uh, it starts around episode 15. That's as far back as you can access right now. And that was the first part of a two-part conversation with Steve Solomon. And for some reason or another, I failed to upload the the second part of the conversation with Steve. So today's going to feature that second part, which is episode 16. And then I think realistically, folks, I'm going to be playing a few reruns this summer And what I'll do is I'll continue to feature stuff that you don't otherwise have access to. So for you newer listeners, it'll just give you a chance to hear some of the older episodes that you otherwise uh, haven't been able to to, to choose to listen to yet. So hopefully you all find that acceptable. Well, you have no choice. You're going to have to find that acceptable. uh, I'm doing my best to get fresh content out every week, but uh, with things on the farm being so busy, it has been difficult. And this week particularly, you know, we're in that bottleneck time of year. We had to get all the rest of the uh, outdoor nightshades out and corn had to go out and I had to get beans out. And it's just that real crazy bottleneck time of planting. So in a few minutes, you're going to hear my the second part of my two-part original conversation with Steve Solomon. Not to be mistaken with a la- later episode I did with Steve again, number three, which featured uh, the topic of composting. That is accessible uh, with currently on this on this podcast feed. So what else can I tell you? I have got my full staff here now. That is really exciting. Uh, my in this farm, I have essentially two people filling a total of sixty hours of work on the farm. I've got one live on the farm full time staff member slash apprentice, uh, and she arrived about uh, ten days ago. Her name is Samantha. And I also have a part-time helper who's coming just from down the road a little bit here in the Okanagan. So she's coming two to three days a week. Her name is Deborah. And in telling you Deborah's name, Deborah would want me to tell you that she is not a 53-year-old woman called Deborah. She's just a 29-year-old woman called Deborah with a with an anachronistic old-timey name, I suppose. Uh, older-timey, I guess. 
I think she's right. I think Deborah is not that common a name uh, for people who are age 29. Anyway, the reason I bring Sam and Deborah up is because uh, last year I had two guys working for me, uh, Ryan and Ian. Uh, they were they were great, but they, as most of the uh, kind of apprentices do, they they move on to other things. Um, but now I am I'm, I'm now I've gone I've swung towards hard towards the other end of the gender spectrum, and I've got uh, two women working for me, and it's already come up in the short time that Sam's been here where I want to uh, address them both collectively, and I don't know how to do that, and I'm sure many people listening are in the same kind of position sometimes where where you want to address a couple of women without using either of their names. And that situation is just fraught uh, because just the natural thing that wants to roll off my tongue is guys. And, you know, that's problematic. I probably don't need to explain that. Um, and I wish it wasn't problematic, but it is. And I don't I don't really resent that. Uh, equally, almost equally problematic or fraught is, is girls, uh, even though that also comes free and easy through the mouth. Uh, hey girls, do you want to go down and weed those, those beds while I am making lunch? Uh, that's just gonna, that's just caught, that's just awkward. So we're not, I'm not going to go with that. So at coffee break today, I asked Sam and Deb what, how they wanted me to deal with this situation. And they kind of chuckled about it and we all had a laugh and, and, uh, we talked, we went over the various options. Um, women just doesn't really work. Hey, you women, no uh folks works folks is and and i'll cut to the chase and say that folks is probably going to be uh you know the leading contender uh but folks just sounds folksy and kind of forced so it has its um drawbacks and then we talked about ladies and immediately agreed that ladies it just feels wrong and awkward uh and almost as condescending as girls or or guys um and then and then sam told me about um this dimitri martin bit if you want to sound like a creep, just add the word ladies to the end of things that you say. You could be saying something harmless too, like, thanks for coming to the show. Ladies. <laughs> Help, I've fallen into a well and I'm trapped. Ladies. <laughs> Come on, ladies. It's like a jacuzzi with really high walls. So we had a laugh about that and then... We talked about whether we could, I think it was Sam that suggested maybe we could use words from other languages and we thought maybe Amigas was not too bad. Um, But that makes me think like I could just say friends or friendos. I like friendos. That's from um, No Country for Old Men. Or uh, then then we we, we stayed within the uh, Spanish language and I suggested like banditas because it sounds kind of badass. Um, So those are some options. Uh, We never really solved the situation, but... uh, Anyway, it sucks. It's just like, it's just a, a sucky, stupid thing uh, that shouldn't really need to be talked about, but um, kind of has to be. So anyway, that's what's going on on the farm. Really busy, which is why you're getting a rerun this week. Wow, I don't usually like to bore you with ramblings like this, but what the hell. Uh, the other thing that's going to happen, so so look, you're listening to new rather mundane content right now and then uh that's like a piece of bread uh and then you're gonna get sandwiched uh in between that piece of bread and another piece of bread at the end that's also new you're gonna get this great interview with with steve solomon author steve solomon uh and that other piece of bread is gonna be a new segment that i'm gonna try out 
for for the for the podcast. What I figured is, I have had the odd person write write in to me and and say that they don't hate listening to me talk. So, uh, and I I notice on a lot of podcasts I like there's there's a little bit of chatter from the host, uh, either at the at the front of the episode or at the end. Um, but I favor the end because that allows all of you who really don't want to just hear me um, vomit words out of my mouth for for a bunch and be kind of narcissistic at the start of an episode it allows you to just get straight to the interview uh the main attraction and then for those who who actually want to hear me um talk a little bit can they can do that at the end so so if you if you make it through this 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 long interview with steve um there'll be a new segment i'm trying at the end so you can either look forward to that or look forward to quickly turning the podcast off once steve says goodbye all right, so I just want to set up this uh, this interview with Steve. I don't do, need to do much because I have a little intro that goes along with the rerun, but essentially a few years ago, Steve Solomon with uh, another writer and farmer uh, and soil scientist called uh, Erica Reinheimer wrote a book called uh, The Intelligent Gardener, and it's a really great book. It contains a great primer on soil science and also makes the argument for why we need to spend more time properly uh, balancing our soils via very specific amendment plans in order to produce healthier vegetables and ultimately healthier humans. If you want to listen to the first part of the con- that conversation, that's episode 15. And this is episode 16, which constitutes part two with my conversation with Steve Solomon. Hope you enjoy. I should note, by the way, folks, this goes back to where before I'd figured out some of my uh, audio challenges as a new podcaster. So sound is pretty good, but not as good as you've been enjoying lately. Thanks. Steve is the author of numerous books on gardening, but it's his most recent one, The Intelligent Gardener, that we focus on in this conversation. In the last episode, Steve and I delved into his history as a gardener and how he came to the conclusions that he shares in this most recent book. In this conversation, we focus a lot more on the book itself. We talk about the relationship between a soil with well-balanced nutrient content, nutrient-dense veggies, and healthy people. We also discuss the sustainability of bringing in amendments to your soil from far away, as well as the some of the overlooked merits of synthetic fertilizers. Steve is very articulate, thoughtful, and frank, which made for a great conversation. So here it is. I hope you enjoy it. Steve Solomon, thanks a lot for coming back on the Ruminant Podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Jordan. So, so kind of like in the last episode, I'll, I'll provide another kind of quick summary just to, to get us going here. Um, you know, the meat and potatoes of your book, The Intelligent Gardener, is about how you discovered that to grow really healthy, nutri- nutrient-dense vegetables that are healthy themselves and, and kind of uh, better able to withstand pests and diseases, uh, one needs to conduct regular soil tests on their soil, figure out uh, the nutrient density in their soil and what minerals are out of balance, and then start adding uh, various mineral amendments to achieve a balance in the soil. You, yes. Yes. So you you call this process uh, remineralization. Um, yes. So maybe let's see. Where do we want to start? Maybe you could start, Steve, by just like telling us how if a gardener wants to try out try this out, and and I really recommend they read your book first because not only does it contain what I just described, but it has uh, a, a few chapters on soil science that were the most accessible that I've seen in terms of books on soil science. So I was really appreciative of that. Um, Thank you for that. I worked really hard to try to make that as simple as I you, could. You, you, you really, uh, you nailed it, Steve. Uh, it, it was really accessible, and you used really simple analogies that really helped me understand, or I, I, I now think I understand 
a lot better what's going on in the soil. So, so suffice to say, I really recommend that listeners read this book. I think it's a really important book. But assuming someone has read it, um, it sounds like the first thing they need to do, Steve, is to is to get a soil test for their for their garden. Correct? That's right. There's 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 no way that I know um, to work out what you've got in your soil for most of the elements without a soil test. Uh, you could work out the calcium-magnesium ratio, I think, without a soil test. Okay. The rest of it, I don't know how you would. Uh, you, know, you know, when soil is acidic, it tastes sour. Yeah. If you taste it, it tastes sour. When it stops being acidic, it tastes sweet. So uh, you could, you know, you could put calcium lime in the soil uh, until it started to taste just ever so slightly sweet. Uh, and then uh, if the soil seemed a bit loose, uh, you could add a bit of magnesium to the soil uh, very gent- very cautiously. <laughs> uh, uh, and anyway, I think we could work that balance out without a soil test. But the rest of them, uh, you just can't tell. So you got to get a soil test. Uh, and I, I mean, you can get a soil test for, from Logan Labs for 20 bucks. Right, and so you and you go into a lot of detail in the book about where to, you've done some research on good places to sell to send your soil tests, like Logan Labs in the states, as well as what they cost and how to go about preparing a soil sample properly. All of that is is in there. Um, so now, what you because a major part of your your kind of your book or your your argument is that that most soils are are out of balance and in many cases quite severely out of balance. Is that right? Yes, that's right. As far as I know, um, the uh, I think I think a really balanced soil would be a rare thing. So, so can you talk, Steve, a little bit? You touched on this in the last conversation, but can you talk about a co- two or three of the major ways, uh, the major problems people have, like the major imbalances people have, and what kinds of problems those cause? So maybe I'll I'll start you off by asking you to talk about too much magnesium in the soil and too much pot- potassium. Oh, that's a good pair. Yeah. Um, magnesium, uh, has an effect on clay. It, it makes clay become sticky. Uh, when the magnesium, uh, when the magnesium level relative to the calcium level is too high, the clay becomes tight and airless. Uh, it holds more water. Uh, it holds less air. Uh, it, it draws on itself. It wants to form clods and get compacted, uh, there's nothing more important uh, when growing crops than reducing, especially vegetable crops, than reducing the bulk density of the soil. You've got to lighten it up, uh, get more air into it. And or- organic growers have been told over and over that the way to do that is to add tons and tons of compost and, or more specifically organic matter. But what you discovered is that, that in, when, in cases where you have way too much magnesium and you have a clay soil, organic matter isn't likely to cut it. Well, it does cut it. It's just that you put yourself on a treadmill. You can reduce the bulk density of the soil with organic matter if you put in enough and keep putting in enough. But unfortunately, that organic matter brings with it minerals. And they may not be the minerals you want. (laughs) And so you can induce other imbalances in the soil. Now, it depends a little bit on, or a lot actually, on where you are as to... Uh, what the organic matter in your area is going to be bringing in for you. Uh, If you live in Cascadia, uh, 
I, I don't think this is going to apply to the Okanagan. I think where you live, you've got a whole different series of rocks, and I don't know, I know nothing about them. Okay, uh, so I don't know. I don't know what your soils look like on that side of the mountains, but but I do know that in in um, uh, anywhere that the the rocks derived from these enormous eruptions of basalt that happened, I don't know, sixty, eighty, hundred million years ago, uh, that made the old Cascade Mountains which ran all the way up through Washington State. Uh, uh, all those rocks are just loaded with potassium. Mm -hmm. and, and they also carry a fair amount of magnesium. They have plenty of magnesium, maybe a bit too much, but they got way excesses of potassium. Uh, the, the, when you bring organic matter that grew on those soils and, and make compost with it and then, or just spread it and till it in or whatever you do with it or buy, get manure from animals that grazed on the land around you, uh, you're bringing in enormous quantities of potassium. So that leads us into the next thing you said. What happens when potassium gets out of balance? Well, if potassium is short, uh, and that's, by the way, my problem here in Tasmania. The, the soils that I'm looking at, especially the one I'm actually growing on, has got very little potassium in it at all. And no matter how much organic matter I bring in, I don't seem to get uh, adequate potassium levels, <laughs> you see. It's the opposite problem. Uh, but uh, when, you build, when you've got inadequate potassium, your plants, a lot of them don't grow very well. Uh, you get disease problems, uh, you get structure problems. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, for a lot of years, I told people in my local book here, uh, I write a garden book for Tasmania that's just a lot like growing vegetables west of the Cascades, and I call it Growing Vegetables South of Australia. And I publish it myself, and I sell it cheap, uh, and it's basically uh, a charitable project to help my neighbors. Uh, uh, there's no way you can make much money when you're dealing with a population base of a half a million people. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, in that book, I used to tell people, and the book still says that until I modify it again, that peppers, capsicums, need to be supported when they get a big fruit load or else they're going to break their branches, especially if it rains or whatever. And I had that experience for years here, you know, and when the when the first sets of uh, peppers started ripening up, I'd get out there and drive a whole bunch of bamboo stakes in the ground and tie the major branches onto these bamboo stakes, and then I'd be all right. This year, I finally got my potassium up high enough in the soil, and my pepper plants are strong and wiry, and they don't break their branches. <laughs> Uh, I mean, potassium is what the plant uses to build structure with. So all that fiber and stuff that 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 creates the strength in 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 the, the joints and whatever, is is affected strongly by having enough potassium for the plant. But let's look at what happens when you go the other way. Suppose you get too much potassium. Well, then plants have a way of responding to to uh, excess potassium. Uh, sometimes it's called luxury uh, consumption of potassium. The plant will start intaking potassium and substituting it for other minerals all over the place. When it does this, it produces a lot more fiber and a lot more carbohydrates and a lot less protein and a lot less enzymes and other really complex molecules that, that are kind of hard for the plant to make because 
a lot of the things that the plant manufactures requires all the other minerals. But, but you know, it needs sulfur, it needs phosphorus, it needs boron, but whatever, to, to make various substances. But when it comes to just making structural fiber and starch or sugar uh, or other carbohydrates, uh, it basically needs potassium. And when you supply too much of it, it just makes a whole lot of it at the expense of the other things. So when you up potassium levels, you actually increase your yield, but you decrease the nutrient density of the food proportionately. As much as the yield goes up, the nutrient density goes down. So you end up with food that uh, the farmer ends up with, say, 25% more bushels of whatever he's growing, but th that 25% more bushels has 25% less nutrition in it. Right, right. So, and I'm sure that we could go through different nutrients and you could describe the uh, effects of too much or too little in soils. But I think the general point that you make in the book, and that's really important, and that you kind of touched on before, is that everyone's soils are going to be at least, you know, out of balance in terms of certain minerals. And, and when they rely just on, say, compost or other organic matter that's sourced locally either on the farm or nearby and then maybe perhaps also add lime various kinds of lime to the soil um if if you know the the, the stuff they're adding to the soil is is going to tend to be either in excess or deficient of the same things that their soils are if they're sourcing it locally so it's, it's just going to exacerbate or certainly not solve uh their problems do i, I that's have that right. right yes if 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 the land that they're growing on and the land that's, that's the source of the organic matter that they're importing happens to be in good balance, then the organic matter will be in good balance, and, and you can put a bunch of them in the soil, and the soil will remain in reasonably good balance. But if they're out of balance, the more you bring it in, the more you accentuate the imbalances. Right, right. So this there's is no way to there's no way to know this until you do a soil test. Right. So that's one of your major points is get a soil test, do it properly, and you explain how to do it properly. But then the other half of this is okay, let's remineralize, and we do that by sourcing a whole bunch of different kinds of whatever minerals or nutrients or whatever that that you are deficient in. Um, that's right. Right. So so this is. This is what's probably, I think, the most interesting and in, in some cases, in some aspects, the most controversial about your book. Because, um, you know, anyone who is really into the idea of sustainable agriculture, I know, uh, are going to perhaps, you know, ask themselves, well, uh, you know, is it really sustainable if you've got to be sourcing, constantly sourcing uh, these minerals or nutrients from other areas, and in many cases, they're being mined or they're being manufactured. So, yeah. um, however, well, I better maybe I'll stop there and just let you respond to that. Okay. Well, actually, you see, there's two there's two aspects to this dilemma. Uh, when people when people uh, flinch or resist the idea of importing nutrients, um, usually they got one or two one of two concerns. One of them, as you say, is the sustainability of doing it. Right. And the other one is uh, the incorrectness of doing it. They have an opinion that artificials or you know bringing in chemicals is a bad thing. Okay. Well, I want I want to I want to talk about chemicals as a second topic in a bit. So if we all let, right, well let's let's focus let's on sustainability. The, yeah, let's talk about the sustainability. Okay. All right. All right. Imagine we're in a world 
where you may not, where everything that you use is brought in by horse and wagon, and uh, you can't really bring uh, tons of anything in from more than a few miles away. Okay. You know, so uh, we can probably, most of us, use lime. <laughs> That's a very low-tech thing that can be quarried out and even can be, you know, processed without steel. You can, you can cook lime in, a, in an oven. <laughs> okay. And, you know. And powder it, and, and uh, make make various kinds of lime preparations that you could add calcium to the soil. But suppose there isn't anything else around you, and you're basically limited to you know what's in the immediate vicinity. Well, the consequence of that is going to be that every part of North America is going to have a different health profile, and there are going to be some places where people are healthy and live a long time and have good teeth and so forth. And there's other places where people are going to be unhealthy and live a short time and have very poor teeth and so forth and not breed very well. And it's they're totally going to reflect the mineral content of the soil. I, that's how it that's how it used to be. <laughs> uh, you talk to the English. Uh we have an awful lot of people here in, in Australia who came from the United Kingdom and uh uh, that place is interesting. Uh, the The west coast of Britain has very heavy rainfall. It's just like the west coast of Cascadia. They get 60, 70, 80 inches of rain in Cornwall and Wales. Uh, and uh, the people who lived there in the old days were little people. <laughs> the Welsh were real short. The little horses were little tiny things. <laughs> uh I don't think the Welsh had a particularly long lifespan. All right. Now, there's a couple of islands uh, off the coast of Scotland uh, where uh, the, the people out there are known to be generally six feet six and more. <laughs> and they're big people, and they live a long time, and they're really strong and healthy. And uh, uh, it, <coughs> the people who, who, uh, uh, eat, who grew up on the soil south of London uh, in Kent and Sussex, where they have limestone soils and chalk soils. And these people are known for having really good teeth and very good health. Uh, my wife, Annie, grew up there, and uh, she's still got a gob full of beautiful teeth right, at, at 72 uh, and real strong bones because uh, she was born in 1940 at the beginning of the Blitz, and, and uh, her family lived out of a veggie garden for her first five or six years. <laughs> and. Uh, made an enormous difference. Uh, and even the milk that came from that area was, you know, the dairy products were better because the cows were grazing on limestone soils. So anyway, I hope I hope that's enough to make that point. Yeah. So I mean, it just I guess guess two two uh, two things. It seems like you're saying one is we haven't touched on a whole lot. Is just that you strongly believe that our that human health is directly related to the nutrient density of the food we're eating. Uh, Absolutely. Okay, and people can read all about your your uh, your coverage of that in in your book. Uh, and then the other is it just what you're saying. It seems like is that people have to they face a choice. Either you can have a more sustainable agriculture that where all of you're you're doing you know you're trying to keep your nutrient cycling as locally as possible. Um, maybe with the ideal being a closed system agriculture where you just cycle um, nutrients through the soils just from just on your farm. Uh, there's a choice to do that or to accept that if we want to be healthy and we want to have if we want to be healthy by eating really healthy food, then we need to import the minerals that are missing from our soils. 
Well, listen, it's not quite that black and white. Okay. Uh, I mean, you can take a soil that's not perfect, and you can manage it intelligently, and you can improve it to the point that there is a greater degree of health on your farm than, than, than there might be with, on the neighboring farm where it wasn't done like that. Uh, biodynamics attempts to do something like that, and, and it works. I mean, you can do better, but if you want to approach the ideal, if you want the best then you have to bring in nutrients. And maybe maybe from there, before we get on to the uh, debate over the use of synthetics, um, um, maybe you could talk another fascinating subject in your book was all about how you're really, you really think that your, your kind of approach is really on, much better suited to small-scale gardening to, and, and often home gardening because most commercial farmers and gardeners are just not, they have no incentive to, to remineralize in this way. Can you talk a bit, a bit about that? It's not that they have no incentive. They actually have an enormous disincentive, the farmer. Uh, you see, the farmer is basically a business person. There are, there are no sustainable farmers anymore to speak of. You know, farmers are, are trying to make money, and uh, they're in a marketplace that has a, you know, where the prices are determined in, in a sort of free market, sort of, except that, you know, the big, the big retailers are, are uh, bending the market in their favor at the, dis, the, the disadvantage of the farmer, which makes it even worse. So look at the situation that a farmer faces. Uh, whatever crop they're growing, the price of the crop is determined by all the other farmers, and the, all the other farmers are mining their fields. Mm -hmm. they're, pu they're putting in as little as possible while trying to get the most bulk yield as possible with no concern about the nutrient density of it at all. Uh, and uh, so they're all low-cost producers. The minute you start remineralizing, you have to spend a lot more money on your fertility than the average farmer. And there go your profits. Right, right. So, so they're concerned about about about, about uh, maximizing yield and making the stuff look appear really nice, but but there's no big incentive to to uh, to pack it full of nutrients beyond that. That's right. And until the public starts buying their food on the basis of what it tastes like, which is the the natural method that human beings have to determine nutrient density. Because, you see, nutrition in the food is the taste of the food. And when the food doesn't have much taste, it doesn't have much nutrient in it. See, but That's I'm, what you're tasting. I'm not really optimistic for that, Steve, because here's the thing. Even if you take the, the, the really small-scale commercial growers like me, uh, I'm certified organic. I'm really small-scale. We're just growing on about an, about an acre, acre and a half in a given season. Um, you know, we base a lot of our marketing on the notion that our stuff is going to taste better. But if if one is to uh, buy into what you're arguing, then there's no there's not at all any guarantee that my stuff tastes better. Yet, I would I would say a lot of my customers are going to be believing that my stuff tastes better. You know, and I, I say believing because I guess what I'm saying is I, I uh there's always the potential that people are going to, it's almost like a placebo effect or something, you know, they are going to believe it tastes better because they're told that small scale organic food is going to taste better. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, listen, Jordan, first of all, your stuff has to taste better because the customer is probably buying it within a day or so of when you harvest True. it. True. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So there's nothing in the supermarket that's less than five or six days away from harvest. Right, right. And that is going to give me a taste advantage for sure. Huge. Second of all, you're actually going to be, you're an organic certified grower. So you're going to be putting organic matter in the soil. True, true again. Ha, ha, having adequate organic matter is an essential part of growing nutrient-dense food. It's just not the only thing you've got to do, but you still have to maintain enough organic matter that the plants um, access the kind of nutritional elements that come from the the organic process in the soil. Um, this is a conversation, by the way, that leads into one about hydroponics, for example. Or, uh, yeah. uh, so I assure you that if whatever you're doing produces a decent-looking vegetable that in any way res closely resembles in any way what's in the supermarket, you know, if it gets a reasonable size and looks reasonably good and you grow it organically, it's going to be a lot more nutritious. Right, right. Um, I have seen organically grown food in the Willamette Valley where this, you know, in the, in the, in the Saturday markets and things like that, that is absolute rubbish. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't even taste good, but it's, it's grown organically. Right. Uh, but, but it's grown on extremely infertile soil with no idea at all of properly building it up. And, and uh, they've got a lot of growing problems they don't recognize. But a lot of people only see the idea. They don't actually see reality. So they see organic, <laughs> but they don't even see the pepper that's in front of them. Yeah, well, I guess that's all I'm getting at is sometimes I think the, it's more powerful just to know that it's grown organically than it is to actually ask yourself how it tastes or whatever. And I put myself in that category, too. I'm not just picking on, on my customers. But uh, Jordan, about your business, yeah, can you ch can you charge supermarket prices for your food? Uh, su supermarket organic prices? No, even just supermarket regular. Oh prices. no, I charge more than what? Like yeah, if if uh, so, we a lot of our business comes from a box program, like a CSA type program, Steve. Yes, uh, I understand. I do that myself. Yeah, right. So so um, if someone's going to compare what they pay for a, a box full of our vegetables in a given week to what they pay for conventional vegetables at the grocery store, it's way cheaper at the grocery store. Well, then, you have plenty of markup in your in your business to be able to afford any remineralization. That oh, yeah, want. no, I agree. No, no, I'm, I'm not, I don't put myself in the category of the farmer you were talking about. In your book, you even, you point out, you're talking about kind of large-scale agriculture in particular, right? That, that yeah. I mean, if you think of a farmer with hundreds of acres to have to remineralize, the cost would be, just be prohibitive given that their, their competitors aren't going to be doing that. Um, so... So the fact that, you see, this is the hope that I have for my book, The Intelligent Gardener. If I can get a lot of home gardeners aware of the fact that they can make their food taste a whole lot better, and then their family and their neighbors who also garden want to make their food taste a whole lot better because they've tasted this better food, right, there may start to become a demand for better tasting food and a whole lot of people raising produce on an acre or two acres in suburban neighborhoods or right near suburban neighborhoods and supplying the people right around them you see and that that's another system altogether i'd love to see that system you know mushroom and get really big and and, and so so would i just for i mean if you're right about the health benefits that we can all realize by eating this stuff i'm totally into it and i can't wait to get started applying the concepts in your book to to our farm um, but one question I have that seems like I can't figure out, you, you make a good argument for, for why larger scale gardeners and farmers can't really do this. You've just, you've just explained it to me right now, but you, you also, in another part of the book, you argue that if you, re, if you balance your soil properly, your plants are going to be extremely healthy 
and you're not going to have yes. the pest problems and the disease problems. So isn't that an incentive for, for farmers and gardeners? Like, wouldn't that make it more likely that they're going to be able to afford to spend the money to, to rebalance if they'll save money by not having as much pest damage and disease and that sort of thing? Uh, well, first of all, Jordan, anybody who's growing on less than a half an acre can afford to remineralize. You're not talking about that much money. Oh, yeah, and that's why I'm asking more specifically about larger scale, where you're getting into the range of they don't have that financial incentive to do this. But all I'm yeah. asking is don't they, through savings because of lower pest and disease damage and that sort of thing? Oh, all yes. Actually, the, the, the net result is probably isn't going to cost you near as much as it seems. You're, but but I can't talk about this with any with any real expertise because I'm not in that situation. Right, right. See, I, I have a I have a quarter acre garden, and on the, uh, and by the way, on a on a uh, an honor box refrigerator. Right. When we first started doing this, we got two large refrigerators. We put them in the sort of like a little school bus shelter where kids would you know wait for the bus. Yeah. And. And there was an honor box there, and in those two refrigerators, Annie put all kinds of little bags uh, for $2 or $3 with, with stuff all nicely washed. And people just came in the gate. We called the business the back gate because we created a back gate on our block, and there was access to it from, from uh, like an alley access. And uh, the first year we did that, no, the second year, we took in $18,000. Wow, no kidding. On a, on, a, yep. on a quarter acre, that's impressive. On a quarter acre, the second, the third year, we we after we really learned how to do it good, and I learned what to grow better, and I, you know, kind of like I was producing what was selling, we were heading for twenty four thousand dollars, when uh, a property developer uh, nailed our gate shut and and uh, began to develop that area into a new subdivision. And so we had to go to a CSA type scheme where we took six or seven of our best customers and started to supply them with a weekly food box. Yeah. Uh, and we've been doing that ever since. Uh, it's not quite as profitable, but it's it's a it's a lot easier. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So 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 uh, I'm just watching the time here, Steve. Mo moving on. Can you okay. can you tell me why the organic community needs to reconsider? the use of synthetic fertilizers. Oh, yes, I sure can. <laughs> uh, this leads us back to the conversation we had before about J.I. Rodale. Mm -hmm. um, J.I. Rodale established the, the idea that the distinction that you use to determine whether some product should be used in your garden or not is on the basis of its either syntheticness or artificialness or its naturalness. Yeah. Now that that distinction, that dichotomy, uh, artificial versus natural, uh, sort of runs through our culture. It's called a cultural meme, and he he keyed in on that, and he really reinforced it. The trouble is, it's a false, useless distinction. Uh, under that distinction, uh, J. I. Rodale used to recommend the use of sodium nitrate and potassium chloride. <laughs> because those are naturally occurring salts that you mine in the desert, very much like borax is mined in in the dead in Death Valley. Okay, they come from they come from Chile. Uh, 
And, you know, you just dig it up, grind it a bit, and put it in a bag and spread it out. Potassium, you know, potassium chloride. Two of the absolutely worst fertilizers you could ever use. I mean, these are chemicals that I would tell people to avoid like poison. So, okay, really quickly, can you explain why? Like, what makes a, a fertilizer, whether synthetic or natural, really terrible to use versus one that is fairly benign? Well, they're different. They have different reasons for being terrible. Uh, okay. Sodium nitrate. Okay. Uh, when you use it to supply enough nitrogen and keep using it, you start putting so much sodium into the land that eventually you build high levels of sodium in the soil. And what sodium does to clay is 100 times worse than what magnesium does to clay. Right. Okay. okay. It totally collapses the clay into an airless mess that's just like goo. <laughs> And it's going to stay like that until you get the sodium out of the soil, which may be difficult if you don't have a lot of rain or the soil doesn't have good drainage naturally. You, you know, you can't, even, you can't even leach the sodium out. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of farms have been ruined by using sodium nitrate. Uh, <coughs> now, uh, <coughs> calcium nitrate, on the other hand, which is a synthetic fertilizer, it's made using electricity. Uh, it... it is a good fertilizer. It supplies calcium. It doesn't acidify the soil. <laughs> you know, it doesn't do any damage at all unless you enormously overply it. Uh, it's good stuff. Now, uh, let's take potassium chloride or muriate of potash, a natural fertilizer. Okay? Now, the trouble with that stuff is, is that when you put it in, the chloride ion attaches itself usually to the calcium that's in your soil. So, yes, you get potassium, but you also make calcium chloride. Now, calcium chloride is highly water-soluble, and it leaches. And so you could, to put it simply, for every pound of muriate of potash you put on the topsoil, you're going to lose a pound of calcium out the subsoil going into the groundwater. Oh, okay. And you use it out long enough, and you'll end up with a soil that for two or three or four feet down, you can hardly find any calcium. And yet, because you put in all that potassium, the pH of the soil <laughs> is going to be over seven. So, uh, you know, in the old days, when farm advisors thought that the reason that you put lime in soil was to correct acidity, when you tested a soil that had surplus, huge surplus of potassium and very little calcium, it actually had a high pH and didn't need any lime, right? But actually, it desperately needed lime. And if you'd add lime, you would actually bring the pH down. Oh, yeah, wow. Okay. <laughs> because you'd be replacing the potassium with calcium. Okay. So so yeah. so try let's try this out though. Um, okay, so I've been you know I've I've been I've come into gardening completely in the organic philosophy, and I have always maintained this: that in general, uh, the reason that we don't use synthetic fertilizers or that we don't want to use synthetic fertilizers is that in general, synthetics are more water soluble, and so you're more likely to have stuff leaching out of your soil and into the water table compared to organic natural fertilizers that are going to be in a more stable form that are less likely to um, pollute our waterways what's wrong i agree you do you do agree with that absolutely especially on what they call light soils okay see yeah if you have a lot of clay in your soil that soil has the capacity to hold on to a lot of plant nutrients and even if you put water-soluble chemicals in there, as long as there's still room on the clay to hold nutrients, that stuff will attach to the clay and it won't leach. 
But if you don't have much clay, you're right. You put in soluble chemicals, and and then you get a bunch of rain, and you lose a lot of your chemicals. But you you don't <laughs> you don't the... see that as a reason to ban them. You see that I, I'm assuming as a reason to use them responsibly. Yes. Also, by the way, let's talk about some more about the misuse of chemicals. One of the most common misuses of chemicals is to use chemicals to apply nitrates. You now, in this case, you mean That's... synthetics. Synthetics. Yeah. That's a huge mistake. Okay. Uh, it's. I mean, we should mostly be growing our nitrates in the soil by using green manure crops. Now we're talking about farming here, not about gardening. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Vegetables is another matter. Vegetables, most of them require much higher levels of nitrogen in the soil than you can usually create by growing green manures. Mm -hmm. Uh, it depends a little bit on on your climate. Uh, if you get good warm soil in the summer and you grow a good uh, a legume green crop and turn it under, uh, you know some people can grow good crops of tomatoes, for example. Uh, you know, just just growing uh, broad beans and turning them under, or uh, and and they get a nice tomato crop. But uh, in cooler parts of the country, this doesn't work very well. Mm. Um, I think that if we want to put in nitrogen, we're better off to use organic concentrates that have a high nitrogen level, the cheapest and most common one being chicken manure. Right, okay. Yeah, and, and I prefer to use oilseed meal for that, uh, or meat meal. Uh, what I think in North America they still call it tankage, and probably people are afraid to use it now because of mad cow disease and all kinds of other things. Uh, <laughs> but it's actually pretty good fertilizer. So if you um, could if you could change the the standards that a certified organic grower has to follow with regard to fertilizers, what do you think you would do? What, how would you structure the rules? Very little, actually. Now, listen, as I understand the rules for certified organic growers, and it probably varies a little bit according to which group of rabbis is doing the certification. <laughs> uh, I look upon organic certif certification a lot like a rabbi's certifying kosher food. And the rules of being kosher or the rules of being organic are just about as sensible. Each one is just about as much nonsense as the other. <laughs> okay. uh, and they're, they're very similar. Did you know that the rabbinate in Israel makes 90% of its income by certifying kosher food? I did not know that. They don't make it from, from doing bar mitzvahs and weddings and teaching children, you know, to read Hebrew and running seminaries and all that sort of stuff and counseling and doing religious services. They make their money by running the kosher business. Okay. Uh, so uh, the organic thing is very similar. Now, what happened with organics, as I understand it, is that as really big commercial interests began raising organically grown vegetables in, in Baja, California, and in, and in California, uh, and it became a big industry, uh, they found that they had to use some substances to balance their soil. <laughs> and so it became okay to use some artificials if you got a soil test that says that you need it. If it's part of a program of, soil, of, of remineralization that's intelligently done, you're allowed to use potassium sulfate, iron sulfate, manganese sulfate, zinc sulfate, copper sulfate, borax, which actually is a natural mine substance. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, you can use all those things. And it's organic, and you're certified. Now I don't know what your your uh, what your certification bureaucrats allow you to do. 
and on this topic, nor do I, because I haven't ever really approached it, my, uh, my uh, fertilization this way. Um, so I wish I could help you, but, but I, I can't. Um, why, don't you check, why don't you check with them, Gordon, Jordan, and tell them you've done a soil test and it indicates you need the zinc. You know, and you want to apply zinc sulfate to your fields. Yeah, and I, and I may even they... have it. I have a book full of the standards in, in the back that I'll, I'll, I should really check and, and, uh, and see what's allowed. But, yeah, I, I was just trying to get a sense of, of what, you know, you know which, so, which class of fertilizers you would like to see permitted that, you, that, aren't, that aren't likely permitted at this point. Yeah. I know of no way to effectively bring in manganese, zinc, boron, and copper without using artificials, although um, there is a form of potassium sulfate that's natural. Okay, It's actually mined potassium sulfate, uh, and it's, it's, it has a disadvantage of being not very water-soluble. It's got a lot of impurities in it, uh, whereas the chemical potassium sulfate will dissolve nicely in water. You can even fold your feet it and things like that. Uh, but... Uh, let me give you let me give you an, a, a couple of other examples of like a, a good fertilizer, okay. okay, and a bad fertilizer. The bad fertilizer is diammonium phosphate. The good fertilizer is monoammonium phosphate. Okay. Both of these are made at chemical factory. Okay. They're made out of phosphate rock. They're better than phosphate rock. Monoammonium phosphate is. Uh, phosphate rock. Hard rock phosphate contains a lot of heavy, serious impurities, including cadmium, uranium, <laughs> okay, uh, etc., uh, lead. <laughs> uh, so when you start spreading hard rock phosphate several tons to the acre, you're, you, can, you can bring in several pounds of uranium, U-238. <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, yeah. Uh, you check the fine print on your hard rock phosphate. It may scare you. Now, when you refine the stuff, when you, when you run it through a chemical factory and you make phosphoric acid out of it, even if it's not real pure phosphoric acid of the kind that you would use to make soft drinks, for example, uh, or other food products, you know, food-grade phosphoric acid, but it's like technical-grade phosphoric acid, you've left behind almost all this other stuff that you don't want. All right. Well, then they take this phosphoric acid and they combine it either with one or with two ammonium atoms. And they make monoammonium phosphate or diammonium phosphate. Now, why is one good bad? Because monoammonium phosphate makes a acidic reaction in the soil. It produces a pH around the granule that's around 3.5 or something like that, just in the, in the immediate vicinity of the little granule of fertilizer for a month or six weeks while it's dissolving into the soil. If you've got alkaline soil, if you've got a soil that has a natural pH of 7 or above, hard rock phosphate won't even break down. It's useless. You put it in soil, it does nothing. You put in monoammonium phosphate, you create little zones of acidity that not only release the phosphorus, but also make a whole lot of other minerals more available in those little zones of acidity. So in certain kinds of soil, that's the kind of phosphorus fertilizer that works. Now, we're talking about calcareous soils here, soils with huge amounts of calcium, desert soils, prairie soils that have, you know, so many minerals in them that the pH is up above 7. Uh, you want to use monoammonium phosphate if you need phosphorus, or 
you could take ordinary rock phosphate or soft rock phosphate and put it into your composting heap and sort of make it bioavailable in the organic matter. And then when you put the organic matter in this alkaline soil, the organic matter creates little zones of acidity around itself. Yeah. And it works. Okay. Uh, but you put diammonium phosphate in the soil, and it creates a highly alkaline chemical reaction and actually makes your soil get more alkaline. So in a desert soil, that's the last thing you want to use, besides which there's twice as much nitrogen in it as there is in monoammonium phosphate. And to get enough phosphorus, you end up putting in way too much nitrogen. Or to put in the right amount of nitrogen, you have, can't put in enough phosphorus. Right. <laughs> so so oh, it's a bad fertilizer. Right. So, so look, just to summarize then, it just seems like, you know, what you've kind of been saying is that the way we should be making decisions around what kind of fertilizers uh, to put in our soil, that, that synthetic versus natural is a false dichotomy, and that what we need to do is evaluate each one individually, whether chemical or natural, based on, first, what is it going to do in the soil? Is it going to confer good benefits on the soil or bad benefits? And then at the same time, is there anything terrible it's going to do for, to, to the water table or whatever? Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. And but, then from there, once you have a whole cat, once you have a whole list of ones that are more or less going to be conferring good benefits on the soil with very little, um, you know, with with a, with lower potential for polluting the water table or whatever. From there, you take that list and then maybe start saying, okay, which ones are more sustainably produced? Which ones are closer to me and the rest? So that the sustainability question kind of comes a little bit after. Would that be about right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, whoever asks, for example, what is the entire actual ecological cost of digging up a shipload of, of hard rock phosphate in Morocco and sending it to the west coast of Canada and putting on rail cars, right, and then distributing it by the many tons, or taking that, that rock phosphate in Morocco and converting it into monoammonium phosphate and shipping that? And now we're dealing with, you know, shipping a tiny fraction of the weight and volume and spreading a tiny fraction of the weight and volume and getting the same benefit and leaving a lot of the dross behind and not shipping that yeah, either. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a good point. What's better? Which is better? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't actually done all the, you know, all the socially responsible addition on that question. But nobody hardly thinks of it that yeah. way. They all think about it in terms of ideal, ideological terms. Right, right, right. Uh, no, I get you. I get you. Okay, so look, I, 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 have not, I don't have a ton of time left with you. So I want to move on first to just really quickly I have a question. It was like one little point you made in your book. You made it twice in your book, and I didn't understand it. You said that once you balance your soils and, as, and you know, as long as you're still maintaining your organic matter and all the rest, you can create soils that end up self-generating organic matter. Or you said something to that extent, and it really confused me. Yes. What do you mean by that? Yes. Okay. Um, in, in, until I learned about all this stuff, my experience was that a veggie garden produced about one-third of its compost requirement. And... You know, I mean, if you composted carefully and expertly all the stuff that the garden produced, uh, you'd have to import about two volumes of finished compost for every volume of finished compost that you made in order to maintain the soil. That, that was my experience. Okay. Uh, then when I started this remineralization program, several things began happening in my soil. The first one is when I got the calcium to magnesium ratio right and the, the bulk density of my soil reduced a great deal, 
then all the biological processes in the soil multiplied many-fold because they had a better air supply. So the soil itself started to make organic matter just from bacteria dying and fungi dying and the fact that crops could make bigger root systems and with more air present, which also decomposed in the soil. So all this actually maintained the soil's organic matter better. All right. Then when I did the soil testing, I discovered that because I had been trying to deal with a soil that had excess magnesium and didn't realize it, I had built an organic matter content in excess of 10%, when actually anything over 6 or 7% in my climate is a gracious plenty. The plants do not need any more than that to supply all the biological benefits that go on in the soil from having organic matter there. The only additional benefit from having more organic matter is to lower the bulk density. But when you've got the calcium magnesium right in most soils, you don't need to particularly lower the bulk density. It's just fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's fine if you've got 5 or 6% organic matter in a relatively cool climate. In a, in a, in a, somewhere in the American Midwest where it's a lot harder, hotter in the summer, uh, you might do fine with 4 or 5% organic matter and still have, you know, perfectly workable soil. Uh, there is no flat rule about how much organic matter you need. It has to do with your climate and how fast it decomposes. Uh, in a hot climate, you cannot build a high level of organic matter. It's almost impossible. It just decomposes as fast as you put it in. Uh, so uh, th- there's, another, there's another part of that, too, and that is you have to learn how to make compost properly. All right? Uh, if you make if you make compost that doesn't make stable humus as the end result, uh, when you put that stuff in the soil, it just decomposes very rapidly and disappears. But when you humify your compost, uh, then you got something that's a lot more stable, and the soil will work with a lot lower levels of organic matter. And this this was a this was so, another fascinating chapter in your book. You have a whole chapter on compost, and you yep. start by saying that the ideal compost is the one you don't have to make if you have the the if you have enough land to just instead grow uh, green manure crops that you turn under and alternate your your plot your garden plot every few years. Yeah, in my opinion, that's the easiest way to do it if you've got the land. And then, and then you also go on to make uh, the claim that that it sounds like, in your opinion. The vast majority of home gardeners are making terrible compost. That's right. They are. Well, I certainly did for 30-some-odd years. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't understand why it, it uh, didn't work so well. Uh, uh, it's a sort of a funny joke, but from 1988 until 1994, uh, I had a piece of ground that had enough clay content in it that I actually could have made really good compost with it, but I never made any compost in those years. I just had three or four gardens and tilled in the you know tilled in the sod every few years and started a new plot and put the other plot back in the grass. So I was practicing that other method that I told you about. So I never so I never found out on that soil that I could have made good compost there if I had bothered. And what you mean by that is uh, you really you maintain that that putting clay in your compost pile is really impo- really important. You got to have 2 or 3% by volume clay in the by starting volume and in the compost heap to make humus. Well, 
Otherwise, you just make decomposed organic matter. Well, Steve, I, I hesitate to get you to go into this because I honestly think I need to have you back on the podcast and do a whole episode just about making good compost because I know that this is there's a lot to be said about it. Well, Jordan, you're such a good listener that I'll be happy to talk to you again anytime okay. you want. Okay, well then maybe we can finish off with something that is, is a little less related to what uh, to your book. But I, I, it's, it's been coming up for me in a lot of different ways, and I really want to get your thoughts on it. And it's about hydroponics. Steve, I really believe that the sustainable farming movement is going to have to confront the that, – that, that hydroponics is going to need to pay, play an important role in – in food security in the future as our as our world population increases it just seems like you can you can do hydroponics in a lot of places where you can't do traditional agriculture i just had an episode that went up this week about rooftop agriculture and how you can do hydroponics on rooftops um but this is like really it's a weird one for me because if i'm right about that if if hydroponics has an important role to play it's kind of counterintuitive i think for a lot of people in the sustainable food movement or food security movement because it's always been seen as kind of a negative thing. So I'm just wondering what your take is on hydroponics and, and, and whether it can produce healthy vegetables and whether it has an important role to play in a food secure and a food secure world world and in the sustainable agriculture movement. Well, this is a little touchy for me to talk about, but I'm going to take a chance and, and, and be very frank about this whole thing, Jordan. Uh, about Five years ago, uh, I began to experiment with growing large size herbs indoors uh, in containers mm -hmm. uh, under artificial light. And uh, most of the people who do this do it by hydroponics. Uh, I, I was disinclined to do that. Instead, I worked out a way to make a soil based grow mix. But the trouble with that is, is that in a container, when you have a restricted root zone, uh, the plants run out of nutrients. <laughs> and uh, you've got to add more nutrients. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if you use organics to add those nutrients, it's nearly impossible to get a proper balance. <laughs> All right? Uh, um, fish emulsion is quite high in nitrogen and has some phosphorus. Uh, kelp has a little nitrogen and almost no phosphorus and, and a bit of potassium and all the trace minerals. You mix the two together, you do not get a balanced fertilizer. There's no calcium, for example. Uh, there's no attention to the trace minerals particularly. Okay? Uh, there's a company in Holland called Canna, C-A-N-N-A, and they make a whole lot of two-part hydroponic fertilizers that don't work in soil. Uh, if you try to use them, you build up various kinds of salts, and the plants get burned very easily. Uh, but they make a, a two fertilizers they call Canaterra Vega and Canaterra Flores. Now, these are designed for soil culture. And when you read the label, they've even found a way to solubilize calcium with all the others. It's very hard to have calcium in solution with most, other, with most of the chemicals, near impossible. Canna does it. Of course, it, they have to use some pretty expensive stuff to make that happen. Uh, and these also contain a complete balanced uh, quantities of all the, the, the trace minerals. Uh, they even put silicon in there, siliceous acid, which is a very important plant nutrient that most people don't know about. It's really short in any soil that has any quartz in it, uh, but it can be short. Uh, anyway, 
you add this stuff in moderate amounts to a soil mix that has lime in it and plenty of organic matter and good compost and, and, and is pretty balanced to start with, that's lightened up with a whole lot of peat moss or core, uh, coconut fiber, uh, and compost so that it has a very low bulk density and uh, grow magnificent plants, better, far better than the ones that are being grown by the people who use hydroponics. Uh, and uh, the local people around here, uh, the knowledgeable people who use these herbs, uh, usually avoid the hydroponic stuff, even though it's much more powerful than the stuff that's grown in the dirt outdoors. But uh, it gives them a bad headache. <laughs> And doesn't make them feel good. You see, now when I've seen vegetables grown with hydroponics, they usually don't have tip-top flavor. And this does this get back to and, your point that you just you got to have microbial life and and organic matter to to have good flavor in your in your vegetables. Yes, absolutely. There's a relationship. See, plants develop a relationship with microorganisms in their root zone, and and these kind of symbiotic relationships uh, depend on there being enough organic matter in the, in the environment for these microbes to eat. And uh, so if you've got a, a soilless medium or a soil that's very short organic matter, um, the plants don't get these elements. Uh, my favorite soil microbiologist was a man named Krasilnikov, uh, a Russian. Uh, and he wrote a book called Soil Microorganisms and Higher Plants, which you can download and read off the Soil and Health Library if you want to. Uh, and Krasilnikov called these substances vitamins. So if a plant doesn't get its vitamins, it isn't healthy. Uh, hydroponic growers sometimes try to give plants vitamins by putting into the hydroponic nutrient solution uh, some kind of plant-based uh, uh, or, or fermented kinds of, of uh, extracts that, that supposedly have them in them. Sometimes they even put vitamins in them, like the B vitamins and things like that. And this does help the plants, but it still isn't the same thing as growing in soil. Okay, so, so in terms of the ability for hydroponics to provide healthy food to people. If you were told about a plan to take all the rooftops in a city and put hydroponic greenhouses on top of them, which is very, very efficient in terms of use of space and all the rest, and, and that's yep. where the population is going to get the majority of its vegetables from, do you think that's a yep. positive development or are you concerned about aspects of what they're eating? I would think it could be a positive element. It would work good. If, instead of using water-based hydroponics, they used a soil-based or soil-like grow medium that had a biological process in it and an essential fertility, and then used hydroponic nutrients as a supplement. Right. And I think they got to put they got to put the plant into some kind of container to make roots. To, to, to make <laughs> roots know? and to interact with uh, microbial life. Well, instead of sitting there in a water mist or something like that that has no micro, that's totally sterile, yeah. uh, they could be grown in a soil-based mix. Now, this soil mix could be reused over and over and over. You know, I mean, you could have a big bin where you dumped all the empty containers and then kind of restored the stuff, add some fresh compost, uh, run a soil test on it and see what it is, bring it back into balance, add some lime if necessary, you know, and then just reuse it, recycle it over and over and over. Um, I, I would go that mm -hmm. way.
okay well that gives me i was glad, i'm glad to get your opinion on it i just uh like i don't know how to feel i just coming from certified organic you know hydroponics aren't even allowed in certified organic and that makes sense i mean organic yeah. is all turns around you know maintaining uh, it turns around the microbial the microbial life in the soil and, and maintaining and improving it so um you know it makes sense why hydroponics aren't currently allowed but i i do think that they're going to play an increasing role in at least in cities yeah. Well, there's a shorthand way, you know, to sort of check nutrient density. It's using bricks. You know, you measure the, the uh, bricks of the plant sap uh, with an inexpensive testing device. You can buy one of these for $20, $25. It'll measure bricks. Uh, anyway, uh, I'd like to see how, how hydroponic vegetables bricks. Right. And my guess, and my guess is they don't bricks very hard. But, but, I, but I guess you're all, you've also discovered that many, 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 uh, many soils plants don't bricks very high just because they're out of balance, eh? That's yeah. right. It's an amazing the difference uh, that you can have depending on how the soil balance works. Well, Steve, uh, I could ask you more and more, but I, I think we're getting to the uh, end of our time here. So I wanted, and I wanted to make sure I left a, a minute or so for you to plug whatever you want to plug to do with your book or soil and health. Library or or your or the uh, the the, the um, soil listserv or whatever. So go right ahead. Well, okay. Uh, thank you for that. Um, well, the most important thing I want to tell people about is that there's a free public library on the internet. It's called the Soil and Health Library, and uh, the URL of that library is soilandhealth.org, and it's all one word: s o i l a n d h e a l t h dot org. And uh, on that library, you can download and read full texts of all the foundational books of the organic gardening and farming movement and allied movements uh, and a whole lot of other interesting material, uh, at least material I think is interesting. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to cost you anything, although people who use the library, every time they ask for a book, they're going to get asked to make a contribution of 10 euro. And whether or not they contribute or not, they still get the book. And the only advantage to contributing is you no longer have to decline to give 10 euro. And just, you just have to no longer click the button that says, no, I won't donate. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's there for you. And if you really want to find out about all this stuff, you want to read Krasilnikov, you want to read everything J.I. Rodale ever wrote, you want to find all about the Hunza and read almost all the books that were ever written about healthy people, uh, uh, you want to find out about nutrient-dense food and what it does, you want to read a lot of interesting health books, they're all in that library. Uh, uh, the, the, the Intelligent Gardener is a book that I've been trying to write ever in a way ever since I started that library, and I didn't know how to explain that stuff to people. So as a teacher, I just put all the original documents there and figured that some people would be moved to read all that stuff and figure it out for themselves. Uh, the, the other thing is I think people should have a read of The Intelligent Gardener. It's not even very expensive. I think you buy a copy of Amazon for less than fourteen dollars. Yeah, I, I, that's you're right, and I I also second that. I, it's it's just such a great book. Yeah, and uh, if you if you live in Cascadia, uh, you want to get a copy of Growing Vegetables West of the Cascades. Uh, if you live in the rest of the country, uh, I'm not as as uh, uh, positive about this book as I used to be, and that's uh, Gardening When It Counts, uh, and that was my attempt about six years ago to write a non-hemispheric biased, non-climate specific uh, vegetable gardening book that would apply to anywhere there was a relatively temperate climate. Uh, and uh, it's not a bad book. 
Oh, unfortunately, the complete organic fertilizer recipe in it is, is out of date. I really improved that fertilizer since I worked on the Intelligent Gardener. Well, they, they can get that uh, recipe in the Intelligent Gardener. So, you know, that's, they, can, they can get the benefits of both books. Yep. Um, okay, and then do you want to plug? I, I know you would love to have people read this book and, and thus create a small army of neighborhood soil analysts. Do you want to plug the listserv or, or just the idea of neighborhood soil analysts? Oh, yeah. Well, I guess I could mention the listserv also. I moderate a, 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 a web forum, a Yahoo group. It's also called Soil and Health. Uh, and uh, uh, you can uh, request uh, membership in that. I don't refuse anybody that seems to be a real human being. <laughs> and uh, uh, I do try to keep spammers off the list as much as possible. Uh, and uh, there's about 1,200 people or more that subscribe to this list, and we have some pretty interesting people that contribute regularly on this list, including some very successful soil analysts and farm advisors okay. uh, and other farmers who have a lot of experience and a lot of gardeners and real bright people. And uh, uh, <laughs> uh, what's Steve? Uh, oh, I'm having a senior moment now. Uh, anyway, uh, check it out. That's all I can okay, tell you. Well, you might enjoy. You might enjoy the conversation. Well, look, I've read the Intelligent Gardener and I endorse it. I have been using the Soil and Health Library for a long time, and I actually donated at some point. I, I said yes to the ten euro donation. I endorse that. I thank you for what you've done with that library, Steve. It's incredible. Uh, and I, I recently joined the listserv as a result of reading your book, and and I've already had some great responses to my first post. So so that's an, another one I can completely support. Um, yeah, oh, I want to say one other thing about the yeah. listserv. Uh, I moderate that thing very firmly. This is a safe place. Nobody is going to attack you personally. Uh, nobody's going to make fun of you or ridicule you. And if they do, they get their head cut <laughs> off. <laughs> They're okay, gone. so name okay? callers need not apply. No, and trolls and troublemakers and professional problem makers who can't be satisfied with any answer and all those people, they're gone. Okay, okay. okay. These are all positive people. Um, all right. Well, Steve Solomon, I have a feeling I'm going to be bothering you sometime soon to come back on because I've so enjoyed. Uh, you bother me anytime great. you like, Jordan. I enjoy well, thanks, talking thanks to you. Thanks a lot for coming on. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. So that concludes that little trip down memory lane. Uh, I hope you liked that. A little bit longer than uh, than my most recent episodes. I realized that, uh, I, I, you know, an hour's a long time. So anyway, uh, I don't have any music for my new segment. I promise you a new segment. We're going to do a new segment right now. I don't have any like uh, music. I'm going to have to get my wife, Vanessa, to, to, to write another little piece of music for, for this segment that I'm going to try. Maybe it's better I don't have a new piece of music yet because maybe this segment is going to crash and burn and, and uh, it, it's maybe it needs to earn some music. We'll see. So just picture some music happening right now. Uh, something upbeat, maybe with some some bass. Not sure. Okay, here's the segment, everybody. Here at the Homestead Farm, I'm doing some things right and some things wrong. This is the Ruminant Do's and Don'ts. Okay, for this first installment of the Ruminant Do's and Don'ts, I have a do for you. I'm going to start on a positive note. I have all kinds of don'ts that, that I can choose to include in this segment if I keep it up. But we're going to start it on a happy note. Folks, my life changed when I started wearing a fanny pack. Now, hear me out. I know fanny packs are like, uh, they're they're pretty dorky. Um, 
I guess they have like some sort of hipster appeal in some circles, but overall, like, uh, yeah, you kind of quickly become, um, either a pariah or you get accused of, um, being, I guess, a hipster if you wear one. But here's the thing. All of you out there who are farming for a living have to carry something with you on a daily basis. I have to assume that. Certainly, if you're a market gardener like me, uh, you probably have a bunch of stuff that you like to carry around. Or maybe you don't and you just don't realize how handy it is if you had a convenient pouch type object to hold a certain number of tools and other doohickeys so that you have them at your fingertips whenever you need. That's what I started doing about three years ago. And I haven't looked back. It is honestly the greatest thing. So I suggest that you wear a fanny pack when you farm. It might feel weird at first, but you'll you'll just honestly you'll ease right into it and then you'll start to feel naked when you don't have it on. So then the question becomes, Jordan, where can I get a fanny pack? And my answer is, I don't know. They're really hard to get. They are so shunned at least here in North America, or at least here in Canada, or at the very least here in Peachland, British Columbia, and the surrounding region, that I have really had to try hard to find them, because uh, I had one kicking around until uh, the zipper fell apart, and I had to go get another one, and I had a real hard time, and I did end up finding one at Canadian Tire, which, for you Americans listening, is the store to go to when you want to buy a spatula, a pair of hockey skates, some rope, and like some shoe goo and a, and a Rubbermaid bin and some deck furniture and a tiller. That's Canadian Tire in a nutshell. Also tires. that If you need some tires, you can buy tires there. Uh, but you can also apparently buy one type of fanny pack that six or eight months into its tenure is already falling apart. So I don't recommend you get a fanny pack at Canadian Tire unless your options are exhausted and you, you just don't have anywhere else to go and get a fanny pack. Uh... I guess what I'm saying is that my Canadian Tire fanny pack is kind of like my placeholder fanny pack until I find um, my dream fanny pack. Because the thing is, I've been using a fanny pack for so long that I have like a really good sense of exactly what I want in a fanny pack. And one day I'm going to find it and I'm just going to be so much happier. Anyway, that's the first question. Where do I get one? Answer, I don't know. You're on your own. Question number two, what do you put in your fanny pack, Jordan? Well, I am so glad you asked. You should go to the ruminant.ca where I have done, uh, I have just published a photo-based blog post all about the contents of my fanny pack. Uh, but since, uh, since you're listening to me right now, I will say uh, some of the key stuff. Jackknife, for sure. Jackknife just comes in handy. Although I this year found at a, a Lee Valley, uh, which is like another Canadian weird gardening store, uh, like a really micro p- pair of secutors, like our, our little like little garden shears, but like five inches long. And I have barely touched my jackknife since I bought those little shears. They, they're really light. They fit in the fanny pack and I use them for cutting almost everything. They cut through irrigation line. They cut twine, uh, all kinds of stuff. So maybe you don't need the jackknife, but only if you have found these garden shears. What else? I carry a piece of wire so that I can poke stuff that is lodged in my sprinkler heads because I use impact sprinklers for a lot of my irrigation. I carry a key to the shed where things are locked and I need to get into and a whole bunch of other really useful stuff. Not a whole bunch, but a few things more, a few crucial items. So head over to the ruminant if you want to see what I'm carrying in my fanny pack. And of course, on the fanny pack goes my cell phone holster, which into which goes my cell phone or smartphone, 
on which can be found dozens and dozens of podcasts, which is how I amuse myself as I go about my work day most days. With only one earphone in, one ear, of course, because otherwise that would just be unsafe and rude to Sam and Deborah and Joe and Jess and the other members of this farm community. Okay, so that 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 caps off the first edition of Ruminant Do's and Dotes with a do. And what I think is that you should definitely consider wearing a fanny pack when you're out and about on the farm. I hope that helps, folks. And check out the ruminant.ca to, to see a photo of the fanny pack. All right, we're finally done. That is like the longest episode in Ruminant podcast history. Thanks for sticking it out, if indeed you have stuck it out. And I should be back at you next week with a, with a brand new episode. I'm going to be gunning hard for that. Depends if I can get these interviews booked. So uh, here's hoping, folks. Today have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon. I don't need anything to live on Except for a little old you I've met a whole army of weasels a legion of leeches trying to give me the screw but if we bury ourselves in the woods in the country wear no clothes so we never have laundry we'll owe nothing to this world of thieves live life like it was meant to be our don't fret honey i've got a plan to make our final escape all we'll need is each other a hundred dollars and maybe a roll of duct tape and we'll run right outside of the city's reaches we'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches we'll owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.